to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black pew Bibles in front of you. And Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you're not super familiar with where the books of the Bible are, the big number is the chapter number. Those little numbers, those are the verse numbers. Imagine that you have not come to a Christian church this morning, but instead, imagine that you've walked into a pagan temple, and imagine that I'm not standing up here as a Christian pastor here to preach a Christian sermon to you, but rather that I'm a pagan priest here to teach you something about the pagan God, whatever pagan God you may be imagining. And imagine that I'm not standing up here to teach you how to pray like a Christian this morning, but instead, I'm here to teach you how to pray like a pagan. Were I to be standing here before you in this pagan temple as a pagan priest, ready to teach you how to pray a pagan prayer, I would need to begin not by teaching you about prayer itself, how to say this or what to say or anything like that. Rather, I would need to begin by teaching you a pagan view of God, which is to say I would need to begin by painting the picture of a very low view of God, a terribly low view of God. In order to pray like a pagan, you must not think of God as an all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly loving Father who delights to give you exactly what you need. Rather, you would need to think of God more like a machine. That can be unlocked or broken into if only you have the right key or code. In order to pray like a pagan, you need to think of God like an animal who can be trained or stimulated, someone in whom you can create a Pavlovian response. In order to pray like a pagan, you really need to think about God as if he's one of your fellow human beings, someone who can be emotionally manipulated. You can say the right things in just the right way in order to get what you want from this person. And if I can do that well, if I can train you how to think of God in this way, it'll be easy then for you to begin to pray like a pagan. It'll just come naturally to you because our conception of God shapes our practice of prayer. So if you come to think of God in this way, rather than using words to communicate your heart to God, you will use your words to try and influence God's heart, to incline it favorably to you, to manipulate God. You might begin to pray to God with an abundance of repetition, you know, hoping to overwhelm God with your many words in the same way that we can crash a website server with many visitors. Once you learn to pray like this, you will not pray words of truth back to God. Rather, you'll try to find the magic words, the ones that will unlock his good pleasure towards you. Your words will function like a talisman, like a a four-leaf clover, like a rabbit's foot, 
The name of God will not capture his nature and identity for you. Rather, it will be kind of like the word abracadabra for a magician. When you learn how to think of God like this, you will begin to pray like someone who is desperately trying to gain an audience with a dictator. And you will no longer pray like a child who has already been welcomed into his father's warm embrace. Now, what if I were to tell you that you might perhaps unwittingly already pray to God like this? You might already pray more like a pagan, that is, like someone of this earth and not someone of heaven. You might already pray in a way that is more pagan than Christian. So much of the story of God's people throughout salvation history shows us that we all too easily absorb many aspects of the pagan religion, the Gentile religion, the false religions of the world around us, of the people around us, of the culture around us. We just got through spending so many weeks in the book of Judges where we just saw this over and over and over again. The story is simple. The people of God have a membrane, but it's a semi-permeable membrane. The wall of the church is porous and And all too easily do the things of this world seep into our veins, including the way that we talk to God. That can be shaped by the world more than the Word. And Jesus knows this. And so as his disciples come to him and they say, Lord, we don't know how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Jesus says, okay, I will teach you how to pray. But before I teach you positively, that is, before I proscribe things that you need to be able to do, I need to tell you how not to pray. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Here is Jesus' lesson on how not to pray. And when you, and that's you, God's people, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. That's the unbelievers, the pagans, the people of the earth. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and it is completely sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Amen. Now, as you've probably already figured out, the heart of pagan prayer, Gentile prayer, is this idea that God can be manipulated. And Jesus says that in the text. He says that the Gentiles, those who are outside of God's covenant love, that they pray using empty phrases and many words. And the reason why they do this is because they think that this kind of prayer will cause God to listen to them. And this view of prayer, it reveals the truth about our greatest prayer problem. And here it is. You're like, Sean, I'm struggling to pray. It's because it's I don't have a lot of time. Or it's because this, or it's because of that. 
Many of, many of those things may be true, but your ultimate prayer problem is this. We don't know God. If we knew the nature and character of God, the way that we should as his people, the way that he has revealed himself to us in his word, then we would talk to him differently. And Jesus says that the reason why we don't know how to talk to God properly is because we don't really know him as well as we should. The unbelieving view of God, the pagan view, the Gentile view, is often that of a distant God, a malevolent deity, yet a figure that's powerful enough that he can actually change our affairs. Were he so inclined or were she so inclined to actually do so? The pagan view of God says, Uh, He or she or they, they may be up there right now, and they may be able to help you or change your state of affairs, but they may not be that interested. They may not be care. They may not care. They're probably just concerned with their own thing, you know, uh, the, the gods of ancient Greece, you know, lustful, greedy, kind of really just like us. And so God may not have much of an incentive to move on our behalf. And therefore, we must pray to God to try to get him to move. We must pray to God in such a way as to actually get his attention. Hey, are you up there? Can you see me? Do you know what I need? Do you want to help me? If not, how can I get you to help me? The pagan feels like he has to pray in such a way as to make God pay attention, as to make God take action on his behalf. And we read about that, did we not, in 1 Kings 18? There in 1 Kings 18, we saw like the dramatic, cinematic version of this principle. We saw it lived out with the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the sole remaining prophet of God. Elijah had a proposition for the prophets of Baal. Let's review. He says, get two bulls for us. And by the way, the bull is significant, if you remember from the book of Judges, what's the symbol for Baal in the Old Testament? The bull. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but set no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. We'll see whose God is paying attention. We'll see whose God listens. We'll see whose God actually cares. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God, and we'll see what's what. See you by the flagpole after school. And so the prophets of Baal prayed. The text says that they prayed from morning until noon, desperately hoping to be heard by their God. They're just heaping up empty phrases. They're babbling. They're sputtering. They're stuttering. It's nonstop. And yet there is no response. They dance for Baal. Nothing. And Elijah, like the good mocking prophet that he is, he tells him to yell louder. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping, and you need to wake him up. Elijah understood that this pagan conception of God was deeply flawed. 
He could see that these prophets of Baal thought about their deity as if he were a man and not, in fact, a god. And so the prophets of Baal continued. We're told, so they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Maybe God will see now. Maybe he'll pay attention. He'll see how much we care as we cut ourselves to pieces. Incantations, verbose speech, dancing, cutting, shouting, it's all the same thing. Pagans trying to move their God to action. Well, the story continues. Midday passes, nothing happens, and we read, there was no response, no one answered, and no one paid attention. How depressing. And then Elijah goes to pray. Listen to the simplicity of the prayer of a man who knows the nature and character of his God. The prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Do you see, friends? Elijah knew his God. He knew that the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh is his name, could not be manipulated into action, that he didn't have to be coerced into paying attention. All that God required of Elijah was sincerity and trust. So I'm wondering if you know that. That's my big application for you this morning. Do you know that? Do you know That repeating yourself over and over and over again won't get God to pay any more attention to you in your prayers. Do you know that saying in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayers is not some magical phrase that functions like a key to unlock the treasure chest of God's blessing? You know, Lord, please give us rent money. Amen. Oh, shoot. We didn't say in the name of the Lord. Let's go back and do it again. Do you know that praying louder won't get God to pay attention to you? Oh, it might draw the gaze of men. It might get them to pay attention and to applaud, you know. Oh, how righteous. Look at this guy. But it doesn't move God on your behalf. Do you understand that you don't have to bribe God to get him to pay attention to you? Do you understand that you cannot in any way manipulate God? You cannot get him to move towards you favorably if he is not already inclined to do so? Friends, you need to know that God is not in any way impressed with our prayers. He's not impressed with the length of our prayers. In our Sunday school class, we learned about the infinite nature of God and the eternal attribute of who God is. He is forever. He is the great I am. What difference does two minutes or 20 minutes or two hours or 20 days make to an infinite and eternal God? Do you know that God is not impressed with your verbose prayers, that is, with your very wordy prayers? In Luke 18, 
we find the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You guys know how it is. You know how it goes. The Pharisee stands up and he prays this essentially pagan prayer wrapped in Jewish garb, right? Thank you, God, that I'm not like them and all that, okay? The tax collector, on the other hand, he, he falls to his knees. He collapses. He beats his breast and he, he cries out to heaven for mercy. The prayer of the Pharisee was 29 words in the original Greek. The prayer of the tax collector was only six. The tax collector went home justified. Do you know that God is not impressed with your repetition in prayer? In Acts chapter 19, verse 34, we read about the devotees of Artemis in Ephesus. And, and the followers of Artemis, they're crying out for hours on end, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is, Ar-. I mean, it's, it's a chant, they're just, it's like being at one of those big, uh, terrible soccer games, you know, they're just chanting over and over and over again, and that's going to move the players, and that's what these people are doing for Artemis in Ephesus. But God doesn't care about those kinds of prayers, that doesn't impress him. The only time you really see repetition in the Old Testament is for the sake of emphasis, and it's usually only two or three times. Do you know that God is not impressed with the complexity of your prayer? Think about who God is and what He has done. God created the universe. Every quark that makes up every atom, that makes up every cell, that makes up every organ, that comes together to form every organism. All matter, all life, everything in existence. He created it. A complexity that we cannot even begin to grasp. He did that. Do you think you can sit down and organize a prayer that is so sufficiently like clever and complex that God will be inclined to listen to you were he not otherwise inclined to do so? God is not impressed with our creativity in prayer. Do you know that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us like the most simple pattern for prayer? Like if, I, if you were to come to me and say, Sean, I need like, uh, like advice for like how do I really pray to God? And I said, okay, here are just six petitions. You just pray these six things and that, that'll really help your prayer life. You'd be like, what does this guy know, huh? Right? It, it has to be more creative than that. But Jesus says, no, I want you to pray three things that have to do with God that his name would be hallowed, that his will would be done, that his kingdom would come, right, that sort of thing. And then I want you to pray these three general things for your life, basic physical provision, spiritual provision, and so on. And by the way, you should know that bad religion is always trying to bring something new and creative to the table, right? Whereas the gospel is always saying, no, hey, don't, stop, stop, stop trying to over, just keep it simple, right? You're overcomplicating this. Do you know that God is not impressed with your vocabulary? Young, reformed guy who loves to study theology and read old, dead, white guys, you know? Uh, Lord, we thank you for the propitiation of the expiation, of the sanctification accomplished by your justification, God. I can say that because I've done it. I've been that guy. I am recovering from being that guy. Guys, God is the inventor of language. All language. So save your thesaurus for your college freshman English paper, you know. 
try to fancy it up by right-click thesaurus, just getting more and more synonyms. God's not impressed with that. He is impressed with the simple faith of a child. Dad, I don't know what to do. Please help me. When I first got accepted into my pastoral internship about six years ago, before I came to this church, I was very anxious. The man that I interned under was uh, kind of an intimidating guy. And about a week before the internship, I called a friend of mine in Delray, Virginia, and I asked him if he had any advice for me. And he said, you know, just don't try to impress him. You know, just don't try to impress this guy. I thought that was good advice. I thought it was obvious, obvious advice, but I asked him to elaborate. And he said, listen, you're just not going to impress this guy, okay? He's friends with all of these famous people, and I could name names. And, and then he has a PhD from this world-famous university, and he was a professor at Cambridge, and he's rubbed shoulders with the world's finest theologians and brightest academics and most charismatic communicators. And you, Sean DeMars are probably not going to go in here and impress this guy with anything that you say or write or do. That's true. How much truer is that of us with our communication to God? We don't need to impress God, and that's good news, because we cannot impress God. We don't need to motivate God to get Him to pay attention to our prayers, and that's good news, because we cannot motivate Him to get him to pay attention. God is not in heaven pouting, waiting for you to say the right words. He's not up in heaven distracted with his own carnal desires, waiting for you to get him to lock in and focus on you and your needs. The only thing, friends, that keeps God from listening to your prayers is sin. That's it. The only thing that would not incline God to listen to you when you call out to Him is your rebellion against Him, your decision to reject Him, your transgression against His holy law. Pagans pray the way that they do because they instinctually know that there is a barrier between them and their Creator. They may not know who their Creator is. They may not understand that this barrier is there. They may not understand why it is there, but they know deep down in their souls, because their conscience bears witness to them, they know that the God who made them is displeased with them because of their sin. And you know that too, do you not? Do you not understand? Well, we all do. We all do. But the Bible says that we suppress these truths. We try to ignore these truths. We try to forget them and move around them. And sometimes we have these moments of clarity where uh, the nature of our spiritual reality, it comes to bear on us. It, it hits us in the gut. And we have, we're forced to recognize that there is a profound disconnect between us and God. And friends, every false religion has this in common. They try to fix that disconnect, they try to overcome it by their own strength, according to their own power, with their own wisdom, the wisdom of this world. You see it at the very beginning of the story of salvation, Adam and Eve. They try to cover up their own shame and sin with fig leaves. The religion of Islam tries to practice the five pillars faithfully 
in hopes of maybe possibly earning a way into paradise. Our Roman Catholic friends try to avoid the, you know, the, the most heinous of sins and then adding to, to their you know, ledger good works. And if you don't have enough good works, then, well, then on top of that, then you can access the treasury of merit, which is a whole other thing. And, and evangelicals, lest we be accused of ignoring our own sins, at our worst, we try to fix our own sin problems. It's just built into us. That's what the flesh does. That's what the sin nature causes us to do. It causes us to not look to God to fix this problem, but to look to ourselves to fix this problem. We try to fix our own sin issue with generosity and Bible studies and church attendance and good works and having better theology than other people. We may not be worshiping Baal in modern America, but false gods abound in our land, even in the church of Jesus Christ. And our approach to God in prayer is all too often more pagan than Christian. So, I know that there's a lot of distractions, lots of people moving around. Come back to me for a moment. Focus in as I say this. The only thing that will ever incline God to pay attention to you is holiness, righteousness, humility. And the bad news of the gospel is that we have none of that to offer God. We don't. And to further increase the sense of our dread, there is no amount of theatrics or hocus-pocus that can make up for our lack of holiness, our lack of righteousness, our lack of true humility. So what hope then is there for a sinful man to be noticed by a holy and righteous God? Well, the only answer that I know of is the only answer that the gospel has been giving for 2,000 years. Our only hope of fixing our broken relationship with God is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Holy One of God, who never sinned, who never rebelled, who never broke God's law, He took our sins on the cross. And because of that, He had a broken relationship with the Father. The Father turned His face away as Jesus was crying out from the cross. But there's more than that. The Gospel doesn't say merely that Jesus died in our place, but also that he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sean is standing here today telling you the thing that's keeping God from hearing you is your sin, your lack of righteousness, your lack of holiness. What shall I do? Trust in the one who says he will be your righteousness. He will be your holiness. If that's you, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and received this righteousness, you should know that God doesn't see you in your sin anymore. He sees the perfect righteousness of your son. This is why the Bible says that all believers are clothed with righteousness. Notice the Bible doesn't say that we are infused with righteousness. Like, like Jesus comes and gives us an injection that then kind of purifies us from the inside out. No, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness covers us. And so now when we talk to God, God doesn't hear our sinful voice. He hears the righteous voice of His Son, Jesus. In the death of Christ on the cross, in our subsequent repentance and faith, 
God makes us his children. And our prayers in heaven, because of Jesus, can now make God smile. If that's true, friends, then you no longer need to repeat yourself in prayer. Trust me, God heard you the first time. Not because of anything in you, but because of his son Jesus. There's no need to try and construct the perfect prayer. I remember when we first started doing prayer meetings here on Wednesday nights, just, I think half the people who were here were like nervous and embarrassed to pray, afraid to say something wrong or not, you know, oh, my tone, or I'm not going to say it the right way. God's not looking for that. He's not looking for you to construct the perfect prayer. You can't do that anyways. But a prayer that's offered up in faith in Jesus is as pleasing to God as his son is. There's no need for self-flagellation in prayer. Jesus has already taken the lashes on his back so that you don't have to, so that you can, with joy and vigor, come into the presence of God. The Father turned his face away from the Son so that we might gain an audience with him once again. Now, if we are Christians here this morning, then our view of God should be radically different than that of our pagan neighbors. We should have a deep and abiding trust that when our heart speaks to God in prayer, He hears us, that He's pleased with us, that He will answer our prayers, not according to our will, but according to His will. We should also believe that the Holy Spirit, which He has given us as a a gift, will increasingly empower us to pray prayers that are in line with His will. Now, if you're here this morning and you feel like you don't know the God that I'm talking about, and you're wondering why I keep using that word pagan over and over again, and maybe it's a little insulting. Maybe. Maybe I'm using it on purpose. Maybe you should come talk to me about why I'm using that word after service. But even if you don't, maybe you should just ask yourself, why is it that all these people in this room seem like they're able to talk to God for extended periods of time? Even if they don't do it perfectly, why do they feel like they can approach God and I don't feel that way? What is it that is standing between me and God? Now, uh, Jesus begins his next sentence in verse 8 of chapter 6 like this. He says, Do not be like them. That is, don't be like the Gentiles who pray this way. Don't pray like someone who doesn't know God. And then he moves on and he gives us the theological rationale for why we should not be like them. He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Hmm. So, why shouldn't we pray like those who don't know God? Because there's something that we should know about God that would make it preposterous, preposterous for us to pray like that. Jesus says that if we know that God is omniscient, that is that he knows all things, specifically that he knows what we need, oftentimes before we even know what we need, then that should affect our prayer lives. Now, this reality that God already knows what we need before we ask him 
it may leave some of us with uh, the question, it feels like there's a tension here, right? If God already knows what we need, then why should we go before him and ask him? He already knows it. We're going to address kind of the, we're going to give you that answer here in a minute. But before we get to the answer, I just want to point out something. It, well, I, I want to ask you, does it seem strange to you that this is a tension that exists in your heart and in your mind, but it's not a tension that exists in the heart and mind of Jesus, right? Jesus says, go to God, ask him, and God already knows what you need before you ask him. You're like, oh, why would I even go to him if he already knows? And there's this huge tension for you, but there's no tension for Jesus. It seems to make perfect sense to him. The same kind of problem comes up whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, right? The Word of God clearly teaches that God elects people for salvation. He predestines them. That is, He plans their salvation before the beginning of the world. We have people who then come and they say, well, if He's already predestined people for salvation, why should we pray for their salvation? And why should we evangelize? And why should we do missions if God already has all the people who are going to come to Him anyways? And we, are, we have the answer to that, and it's a simple answer. God delights in using us to accomplish his purposes. He ordains the means as well as the ends. That's the answer. God is glorified by using us in this process. Now, I don't want to lead us down a rabbit trail into election and predestination this morning. I simply want to show you that the utter sovereignty of God in salvation does not in any way prevent God from calling you to take action. In the same way, the utter omniscience of God, Him knowing all things, including everything about you and everything you need, does not in any way prevent Jesus from telling you that you should go to God in prayer. Here's an illustration that might help. Uh, I love it when my kids need me, you know? I, I, I don't always love it, but I do love it. And since both of my daughters are still fairly young, they both need me more often. If you've had children kind of grow up and leave the home, then you know that one of the saddest things, especially for moms, is when you feel like your kids don't really need you as much as they used to, right? That's one of the hard things about your kids growing up. They don't need me. Dad is like, great, get them out of here. But a a common theme in my home is the sound of one of my daughter's struggling with something, right? It could be uh, how to get the trash bag on the trash can. It never seems to quite work, right? There's always three corners and the fourth never gets there. It could be them struggling to untie their tennis shoes, whatever it is. And you know that this is happening by the, 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 like, the, the guttural noises that you hear coming from like the other, I hate this. Something flies up against the wall, you know? Uh, grunting and huffing and puffing and groaning and complaining and a lot of I hate language. And in those moments, I could, I could simply say, hey, baby, come here. What, what are you, what's going on? Come to daddy. Let me help you. And sometimes I do do that. But most of the time, I don't. I wait for one of my children who are struggling. I wait for them to call on me. I wait for them to come to the end of themselves, to grow so frustrated, so confused, so angry that they just, I can't do this. And then in humility, they realize they need help from outside of themselves. 
And when that usually happens and they say, Dad, I need help with this, can you please? I usually respond appropriately, accordingly. Sure, baby, come here, tell me what you need, let me help. One of the main reasons why I wait for them to come to the end of themselves is because I am honored, one might even say glorified as their father when they realize that they need me. When they come into my presence and say, Dad, there's something I can't do. I need you to do it for me. You're capable. I'm not. They say that all the time. (laughs) If only. In the same way, but in, in actuality, in an infinitely more profound way, God already knows what we need. He sees our struggle. He hears our grunts and our groans. And yet, He calls on us to bring our needs before him in prayer. Why? So that he might be glorified as the all-sufficient, all-powerful, perfectly capable, perfectly loving father who is absolutely able to meet all of our needs. When my children need something from me and they come to me and they ask me for help, there is some decorum, right? Manners, please, sir, thank you, that kind of thing. But I don't make them jump through hoops. They need to address me appropriately and respectfully as their father. But I don't make them jump up and down on one foot while they're rubbing their stomach and patting their head. I don't make them say just the right words. I don't make them repeat their requests for hours and hours on end in order that they might be heard by me. No, I love them. They are my children. I want to do them good. It brings me joy to do them good, to help them, to serve them. And so when they make their requests known to me, I respond appropriately. But here's here's where the analogy breaks down, and all analogies fall apart at some point. As a human being, I'm often distracted. I'm selfish. I'm incapable. Spencer Miller had to come and relight the pilot light at my house recently. Which means, because I'm all these things, distracted, selfish, incapable... Sometimes I don't listen when my daughters are trying to tell me what they need. Sometimes I can't help them. Sometimes I don't care because I'm concerned with what's going on with me. But our Father in heaven is never selfish. He's never distracted. He's always capable. He's infinitely focused. And he can meet all the needs of every one of his people at once. He's never going to be overwhelmed by our requests. Listen to what Jesus says to earthly fathers. He says this, If you then who are evil, well, Jesus, that's not very nice. Come on now. (laughs) Tone it down a little bit, right? It's almost as bad as calling somebody a pagan. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven, your Father who is not evil, your Father who is righteous, who is perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly good, He, how much more will He give you the things that you ask Him for? There may be things that my daughters need from me that I don't know about, but there is never going to be anything that we need from God that He is not perfectly aware of. And sometimes God will be exceedingly merciful. He'll give us exactly what we need before we even realize we need it. 
He's probably done that for you like this very morning, maybe a hundred times before you got to church. But I'd be willing to bet that there is something in your life right now, like today, like at this very moment, that God knows that you need, but he just hasn't acted on your behalf because he's waiting for you to glorify him and bring that need before him. He's waiting on you to come to the end of yourself. He's waiting on you to humble yourself and recognize that you need him. He hasn't moved yet because he's ill-informed. It's because you're ill-informed. Now, maybe you just assume that because God knows your needs that he will just meet your needs. But the second half of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us, lead us not into temptation, the second half of the Lord's Prayer shows us that there are a number of needs that we always have. We're always in need of bread. We're always in need of forgiveness. We're always in need of God delivering us from evil. And yet we should always take those things to God. We should never take them for granted. We should never just assume, well, God obviously knows that I need bread, so I'm not going to go to him and ask him again. No. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. There's an assumption built into this that feels like a contradiction, but it's not. God will know every single day that you need bread, and every single day you should go to God and ask him to provide your bread. For some people, uh, asking for money is not a big deal. It just, it just it doesn't bother them. They're just not self-conscious about it. But many people are embarrassed to ask for money or to borrow money, and they'd rather, honestly, go without food than have to ask someone to borrow money to pay for their food. They'd rather lose their house than ask for help in paying their rent because they got a little behind. And for a person like this, to admit your need is a tremendous act of humility. The same thing is true of us. When we go to God and we ask Him to meet our needs, it is a tremendous act of humility. It reminds us of the great of the biblical truth that not only in God, excuse me, that only in God do we live and move and have our being. So friends, I want to challenge you this morning as we wrap up our sermon to stop trying to resolve some of the tension that you see in the Bible. If God is not bothered by this tension, then you should not be bothered by it either. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, uh, the psalmist prays like this. He says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. So God knows the psalmist exceedingly well. How well? He says this. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And then the last verse of the psalm says, Search me, God, that you may know me. The psalmist in one breath praises God for knowing him completely, and in the next breath says, God, search me and know me. So church, as we go to God in prayer this week, Let's pray like we actually know our Father in heaven, like we actually have a relationship with him, like we have actually been given his word 
which communicates his nature and character to us, his mighty works, which should be praised. Let's go to him as if we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, who always stands interceding for us, making our prayers heard because of his righteousness. Let's pray like the Holy Spirit of God actually lives in us, helping us in our times of weakness, giving us words to pray when we don't know what we should say to our God in heaven. Let's go to God and pray with the boldness of an heir to the throne, the dependence of a newborn baby, the humility of a beggar, and the confidence that our God in heaven knows what we need and delights to give it to us every single time we ask. Let's pray. Father, we love you, (laughs) and we don't love you like we should. We don't depend on you like we should. We don't display the reality of our dependence like we should, and yet you are kind to us. You still meet our needs. You humble us. You put us in positions where we have to go to you. You drive us to prayer, God. So God, help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to talk to you, not out of feelings of guilt, but because we love you and because we know you. Help us to delight in you above all things we pray. Amen.